0: Welcome back, everyone. If if it works for you to have your video on, that's nice, as I can uh, see people. So if that works for you, yeah. First of all, I want to uh, acknowledge that uh, we're in the middle of the Jewish uh, high holy days. As is said, La Shana Tova, which means Happy New Year, and there's. Um, often an emphasis on three aspects, really, it's really about uh, returning to one's uh, deeper, more authentic nature and doing so partly through uh, seeing where one has fallen short and then recommitting to one's uh, higher and deeper intentions, both personally and in terms of social justice uh, through a combination of community and uh, an inner work. So I want to just acknowledge uh, that this is uh, a time about uh, 10 or 12 days. So I want to focus today as I did last time on uh, awakening on the theme of awakening And explore what it means, particularly exploring what it means in our times. Previous to last week, we had uh, given a lot of focus to working with challenges in practice. Working with where we noticed our own uh, reactivity, uh, our tendencies to sort of compulsively push away or grasp uh where we had maybe uh interpersonal challenges or challenges in our work related to what's going on in the world often very much uh integrated or intersecting with our own personal issues we looked at the the teaching of the eight worldly winds you know a very ancient teaching that identifies uh, basically eight challenging situations that often get us stuck, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute or having a good reputation or a bad reputation, and then praise and, and blame. So we've looked at that, and we focused on various kinds of challenges, personal challenges, as well as the uh, collective challenges, you know, which are very much very much with us, whether the, you know, immediate issues related to Afghanistan and the fires and climate emergency or the uh, other systemic issues that are very much with us that have been there for some time, racism, economic inequality, uh, we could go on, you know, 5,000 years of patriarchy. How's that? (laughs) Right? So, um, sometimes I'll have to focus on that. I think I've mentioned from time to time, I'm I'm part of a small group. We meet monthly. We we kind of a little bit tongue-in-cheek call ourselves, we're looking at, these are male teachers looking at gender issues. We sometimes call ourselves Dharma dudes deconstructing patriarchy. I don't know if that's pretentious or not, but that's what we sometimes call. Anyway, um, so I also brought up last time that as we're looking at challenges, it's also really crucial to keep focused on beautiful qualities, on the uh, qualities we might call of the awakened uh, mind, heart, and body. And these can be very crucial, actually, when we're going through challenging times, to keep uh, keep deliberately going into uh, the beautiful qualities, inviting them. You know, I know when I when I work with people, for example, on the theme of transforming the judgmental mind, a lot of which is going into difficult or painful territory. You know, I basically say, you know, there are two foundational practices. One is mindfulness and really tracking what's going on. But the second is regularly going into beautiful states as much as that's possible. You know, having particularly regular uh, heart practices, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and so forth. Or it could be being with beauty. As a practice, as something we do regularly, maybe dance or the trees or the forests or music or art, you know, and so forth. And having those as places we regularly go, I think very, very central to our our awakening practice. And so uh, last time people named some of the really beautiful states or experiences that had occurred in the previous week. You know, and we looked at... Um, different teachings about awakening you know one teaching that many of us will know is the teaching from the Buddha on the factors of awakening the qualities that when developed lead to awakening seven he named mindfulness and then three sort of activating uh, qualities Um, first is um, inquiry or investigation and energy and joy or rapture. These are actually both natural qualities of being awake, either momentarily or more stably, but they're also qualities that when we cultivate, they bring us towards awakening. And so when we're cultivating mindfulness or equanimity, this is developing awakening qualities. And I also uh, gave the understanding of awakening from the Buddha and then from some later Buddhist traditions. I want to review that briefly and then today really focus as I mentioned on exploring what does awakening mean in our contemporary time. Does it mean simply doing what the Buddha taught? I'm going to suggest that it means partly that but there are other elements that are important for contemporary awakening. So in that way, I'm not being orthodox. Okay? hope that's okay. And I'll I'll look at the uh, I'll look at the number of Zoom participants and notice if there's a sudden drop, but hopefully not. Okay, so um, the Buddha typically talked about awakening more negatively as the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. And all of the practices that we're naming are practices having to do with uh, seeing and transforming greed, hatred, and delusion. And we can see that, you know, in in a number of different ways. Um, This is is, um, a passage from the Dhammapada I gave last time. Those who fully cultivate the factors of awakening give up grasping, enjoy non-clinging, have, a dis- have destroyed what are called the toxins, the negative qualities. They are luminous and completely liberated in this life. And there are a lot of other practices uh, which are also taught. There are other teachings. There is one model called the Wings of Awakening which is also called the Seven Sets. It's not taught that often we once taught it for, our, um, for a one-month retreat that we did. Actually, I think we did it twice that we did in the last 10 years for people practicing a month. We focused on these 37 wings of awakening, which come through seven different teachings, the four foundations of mindfulness and the seven factors of awakening, the noble eightfold path, the four types of skillful effort, and so forth. And this, uh, these, these, are the, um, these teachings are called the Bodhipakya Dhamma, which means the, really means the qualities conducive to awakening. And so that's primarily how the Buddha taught. And that, that can be a beautiful teaching. And again, I'm not taught very, very often. I once focused on those 37 wings for two years in my own practice. You know, and and studied studied some of the texts. So maybe I could maybe I could offer that sometime. But it's it's a beautiful teaching. But he mostly focused on freedom. The freedom of liberation, as cutting through greed, hatred, and delusion. He also again used other words. The main word is bodhi. Some of you know, which means awakening, and it's it's the same word that was in the uh, ordinary language for just waking up in the morning so it's uh, the notion of waking up and it's um, it's very interesting that we have now you know in the last period of time we also have the the word uh, woke being very common you know uh you know there's a book by Justin uh, I think Michael Williams called stay woke which is a meditation guide you know and this is a uh, the word "woke comes especially out of the uh, African American tradition, and when I did a little research, it comes from uh it comes you know it was from especially songs uh, dating at least from the nineteen thirties. You know, there was a song by some of you know, the great singer Leadbelly. he had a he had a song in which he basically say said "Stay woke, don't fall asleep and it was in was a song in relation to the uh, the Scottsboro boys, the case from the early 1930s, some of you know. So, so these are the these are the, some of the teachings to uh, cultivate these qualities, to develop both a kind of temporary and more stable awakening. And there's, I'll just mention one other teaching from the Buddha. He had a distinction between what he called these were. He had another word called vim, vimutti which is usually translated as liberation and which he said there were two kinds. There was one that was temporary, particularly connected with the heart qualities, loving kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity. When we develop those qualities, we experience a kind of temporary liberation. The mind is in joy and a beautiful heart. And he said that, you know, as we develop the other qualities that uh, vim, vim, vimuti can be more and more stable. So we can experience this awakening or liberation both in a temporary way and then gradually have it be more and more stable. I also mentioned how the Buddha at times spoke about awakening in a more positive way. And he sometimes talked about a kind of awareness which is seems to be what we would call non-dual, this awareness in which we feel connection with, at least temporarily, with all beings with what's inside and outside. There's no distinction between inside and outside. The Buddha talked about this the, the state of mind as signless, boundless, and luminous. And later in the Buddhist tradition that became quite pronounced. We have, and then last time I mentioned two traditions, the Thai forest tradition. Teachers like Achan uh, Man, Achan Mahabua, Achan Cha. Achan just means teacher. And for these, there was also pointing to a quality of the mind of awareness, which they often called radiant, which was something which was, again, they use language very similar to Buddha. It's beyond It's beyond ordinary concepts. We go beyond ordinary thinking and ordinary concepts. There's a boundless quality to it. It, There's a sense in which consciousness goes towards the infinite. And there's a quality in which it's also filled with light. And this is accessible. And last time when I asked, people had had experiences of that at least briefly. How How many can recognize that as something that you know that you've experienced at least briefly. How um, many can connect with that? Yeah. So that's there for for some of us and this is something that can be cultivated in uh, in different ways. Um, this is how Achan Cha talked about it, the great Thai teacher. We are practicing to reach the mind, the old mind. The original mind is unconditional There is no good or bad, long or short, black or white. The nature of the original mind is unwavering, it is tranquil. How do we find our way to the old mind? It is finding our way to our old home, the original mind that does not waver. It is perfectly peaceful, it is already within us. So that's again very similar to the Buddha's teaching. And then I mentioned one other tradition Uh, that I've also practiced in the Tibetan um, Dzogchen and Mahamudra traditions. And I gave a very parallel quotation from uh, Dagpo Tashi Namgyal, from the 16th century. Beautiful quotation, which has uh, often guided my practice. Very simple words. These were words he used. Open like the sky. He's pointing to a quality of mind. Open like the sky, pervasive like the earth unshakable like a mountain, lucid like a crystal, shining like a flame. And in those traditions there's a sense that our deeper nature is like this, but that somehow we get confused. That's why I think Achan Cha talks about this being our old home. And in the Tibetan tradition, There's this sense that our original nature is this uh, vast, luminous awareness. And then somehow, we lost awareness. This, This is from an old text from about a thousand years ago. In the beginning, delusion arises when awareness of the source is forgotten. The mind becomes numb and dull. This is the first ignorance. Instantly unconscious, one thought, one's thoughts wander aimlessly. One is seized by hope and joy, by hope and fear, I should say. This begets the division into self and other, friend and enemy. And through clinging, this becomes habitual. So it describes both a way that the original nature is that of awakening, but that 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 gets lost. And there are teachings to access this open awareness. I teach some of these in my retreat called settling, seeing, and spacious and spacious or luminous awareness. And they're basically techniques uh, which can access this quality of awakening, at least for short periods, five seconds, ten seconds, maybe like many of us have experienced this, maybe just being in the wilds and having an opening, or it could be sometimes uh, when there's a very close heart connection with another person, and something just opens up that's beyond in some way, that can occur as well, you know, so it can be somehow when the heart and mind just open up. But there can it can be also uh, taught to access, you know, and there are different ways of doing that, usually some way in which we can um, drop our ordinary mind and experience this this vastness, at least for a short time. And then the teaching on this, and we call this sometimes awakened awareness, the teaching is to first access it very briefly and then uh, access it more and more until it becomes stable, first in meditation, which can take some time, and then later more and more in daily life. So that would be a very traditional practice of awakening. You access these powerful states, you keep on working with practices which help us to develop more of the awakened qualities. We work through our so-called stuff, our greed, hatred, and delusion. And this is a very traditional path and and a quite beautiful path. And I want to ask uh, what could be seen as a radical question. Is that enough or is there a need for a more contemporary path of awakening? And maybe even understanding of awakening. So I just described something beautiful. Maybe many of you were saying, "Sign me up! I'm ready. I'm ready for awakening." How many of you are ready for awakening? Raise your hand. Okay. And and now I'm good. Now I'm taking the rug out a little bit. Is that is that kind? I don't know. Um, so, but I'm I, the answer I'm going to give is that. Traditional understandings of awakening are very, very crucial. And they're ways that the traditional practices don't get at all our stuff. That's going to be, that's the short um, point I'm going to make. Thus, we need other other kinds of practices to complement the traditional teachings on awakening. So I'm going to, this is what I'm going to explore. And going to... Uh, give a few points which are really pointers towards what we might call a contemporary map of awakening. Some people have said that we need this and they've even talked about what they call a fourth turning of the wheel in Buddhism. Some of you know in the past, in the history of Buddhist tradition, there's sometimes been uh, what's called a turning of the wheel. The Buddha gave a first turning of the wheel and sometimes it's said that the later Mahayana teachings that came 500, 700 years later were a second turning and that the third turning came in India with what's called the Vajrayana, later later brought to Tibet. And some have said that we need a fourth turning now. You know, one person who talked about that. Um, a colleague named Christopher Queen particularly referred to the work of one of the great teachers in India named Ambedkar. Some of you know Ambed... How many of you have heard of Ambedkar? Not not so well known. Ambedkar was the leader of the untouchables in India. The people who are called the Dalit. And he... This was the people who were out of the caste system. They were so, they were, you know, made to do the most disagreeable work under the caste system in India. And Ambedkar said, as long as basically, as long as we have the caste system, Hinduism is not a good home for us. So what should we do? And he studied all the world's spiritual traditions, and he said that Buddhism is a good home. The Buddha, Buddha, as as I've spoken about uh, in the past, the Buddha criticized the caste system, and would have nothing to do with it in his own community. And and so Embedkar said, Buddhism is a good home, but we still have to make some shifts. And he he uh, described some shifts which later were called an example of something like a fourth turning. He said that. Uh, we need to engage with uh, uh, social issues. The ideal person can't be the monk or nun. We need to be in the world and engage with injustice," he said. That needs to be part of the path of practice. And so he, he spoke like that. We need the, the person, the ideal practitioner, needs to be in the world and engaging. And so, there, for me, there are some other reasons why I find a need for um, something like a contemporary path of awakening. One of them is, and we can, we can maybe explore this later, one of them is, as many of you know, that we've often found in the last, let's say, hundred years. Examples of people who seem to be very awake in traditional ways, but are not so awake in other ways, you know, including uh, teachers who have often said or done things that are very problematic. How many of you are aware of some of these issues at times with Buddhist teachers? Right. I think many of us. Right. And so, so I, I found you know a few examples which are a little bit shocking. You know, one, one set of examples comes from um, uh, Japanese Buddhist history. Some of you know that, and that there was scholarship on this that particularly brought out, there were a series of books, particularly in the 1990s, on the relationship between um, you know, Zen teachers and uh, Japanese nationalism and even fascism in the first half of the 20th century. It's, it's somewhat shocking to read some of this stuff, you know, and you can ask, you know, how could there be a quality of awakening which coexists? I found one passage, this is a little bit shocking. Uh, this is from one of the great Zen teachers of the 20th century named Yasutani Roshi, who was very instrumental for bringing Zen to the U.S. And, uh, you know, was a teacher of uh, Philip Kaplow and and other others U.S. Zen teachers, and he was a great supporter of Japanese nationalism, and you know, including during World War II. And he also happened to be deeply uh, anti-Semitic. It's very strange having these awakened qualities. This is from a passage in a book that he wrote. It is therefore necessary to thoroughly defeat the propaganda and strategy of the Jews. That is to say, we must clearly point out the fallacy of their evil ideas advocating freedom and equality. The general citizen became fascinated with the ideas of freedom and equality as advocating by the scheming Jews. We must be aware of the existence of the demonic teachings of the Jews. And it goes on like that. And that probably coexists with some awakened states. How can that be, right? You know, we could go on. We could, uh, you know, we could see... You know, as many of you know, there's there's a, a long history uh, of teachers, both Asian and Western teachers, who seem to manifest some qualities of awakening, but also have been very abusive, and these are mostly male teachers, abusive towards their women students, right? There's a long history of that in, I think, in all of the Buddhist lineages. It's it's particularly seems to happen when teachers are on their own. And I, as far as I know, there've been situations like that in the insight meditation world, but a little bit, but not as many, particularly because we tend to uh, teach retreats as teams, not as individuals. When teachers are more on their own without peers or without anyone to check them, there's, a, there's uh, at times been abuse. And so we know that. How can that coexist with people being awake in some ways? right? You know, and, you know, we could go back and, you know, could go back to look at the link between sexism and Buddhist tradition, or I think all spiritual traditions. How does that exist, right? How does that exist? Or, you know, in in, in Western Buddhism, there, there are less clear examples in relation to Uh, you know, racism, not quite as blatant, but there, you know, we can see different examples of that. You know, one person I know uh, uh, was studying Zen and she was taught to don't pay any attention to your own identity in terms of race or gender or sexual orientation. Just transcend all of that and go for awakening, right? And... This is uh Zenju Earthlin Manuel, an um, African-American teacher. She later wrote a book in which she reported those kind of experiences. Or we could talk about the ways that until probably uh, 20 years ago, the insight meditation world was, uh, was less diverse than it is now. And there's still plenty of issues. You know, and how does that go along? You know, how do we... How do we get guidance on psychological issues or social justice issues? And so um, my own conclusion from reflecting on some of these uh, stories and experiences is, is that there's a need to develop an expanded map of the path of awakening. That brings in ways to get at some of this material and gives a wider sense of what awakening is. So, if you thought you had enough practices here, I'm going to talk about the need for more. Oh my god, you know, but but listen to what I say and see 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 how this resonates with you. What I'm going to suggest is that there's a need to integrate traditional notions and practices of awakening with more contemporary practices. And acknowledge that this takes time. You know, I personally have been involved for about 30 years with what we call socially engaged Buddhism and I know that developing understandings of how we can integrate an interest in social justice with inner practices takes a long time to work out. And so this can t- this can take some time. So I want to what I how I thought to organize these reflections. Then I want to open things up and hear from people. Are to um, are to, he- are to identify six uh, six aspects six aspects of a kind of contemporary map of the path of awakening. And again, what I'm going to be pointing to as is a need to go very, very deeply with traditional awakening, but then go very deeply with more contemporary practices that can help. And the shorthand that I'm gonna give is that generally speaking, we need to integrate material that comes more from what we might call psychology related to Getting at psychological conditioning, getting at you know uh, residues from maybe a difficult childhood, uh, residues uh, from difficult experiences, trauma, um, family stuff, how we were, how we coped with difficult experiences. Um, this is one whole area that can both, I think it can also make some sense of why there have been problems. And then a second whole area is how do we get at social conditioning? You know, and and of course they're, they're interrelated. So I'll make six points. And again, see if these resonate with you. And I should say that I've sometimes had a vision of developing a training program which could combine going deeply into traditional models of awakening, but also bringing in more contemporary practices that get at our, you know, stuff around psychological and social conditioning, and do both, and have a training program where we focus on those. How many would be interested? Okay, very good. Okay, I'll I'll keep you in my, I'll keep, you know, I, I'm trying to find the right way to do it, because I've thought of doing that maybe with a, a small program, 30, 40, 50 people, you know, and I probably would would co-teach it. So I'll keep you in mind. But this is some of my thinking that's the background for this. So first, with uh, you know, with a, a contemporary map of, of awakening, we identify further forms we might say of greed, hatred, and delusion, ways that we get stuck or caught that don't appear on traditional maps, but that we can see when we look at what we might call psychological and social conditioning. And so what we're really doing its it's, you know, in simple language, this is trying to say, what does contemporary freedom look like? What does it look like to be a free person in a free world, right? And so, and what's the path to freedom? And it's gonna say that the important thing is to combine inner and outer freedom. That's the vision so we integrate as I mentioned some of the core insights to be simple about it of Western psychology again some of the areas I mentioned shadow material um, when do we get stuck developmentally uh, how do we have residues from our past difficult experiences you know we look at that in, in the work I do on the judgmental mind it's a lot lot about seeing what we call limiting beliefs that often came from when we were quite young, limiting beliefs like something is a little bit weird with me, or I'm not okay, or this part of me is not okay, my anger is not okay, or, you know, uh, my needs will not be met. Something, you know, we can identify a lot of those, and I've sometimes looked into that when we've explored the theme of working with uh, being judgmental of self or other here. A second broad area are also the various forms of social conditioning that bring conditioning, you know, and there, there are so many of them, but we could identify social conditioning around race and gender and age and sexual orientation and appearance and... Ability and so forth, right? And we probably could name another ten or fifteen of them that we have in our society. Unfortunately, social hierarchies in which uh, those in you know these different groups there's typically an in group and an out group, and of course that's been challenged. In all, those have been challenged in all sorts of ways, but obviously they're still present, right? So, so we want to really name. the the forms of, of social conditioning such as I just named. So that's the first thing. The map names further forms of greed, hatred, and delusion. That's point number one. Number two, we need a whole further set of practices to get at the stuff, right? And to integrate it with our mindfulness, our heart practices. And again, that's been done a fair amount already. I think, you know, I mentioned my own work with The Judgmental Mind. A lot of people have worked on this as well. And I've worked to really integrate aspects of psychology with mindfulness and with um, compassion, loving kindness, and to, um, to do this. A lot of people have been trying in various ways to integrate uh, insights from uh, more psychological insights with the Buddhist notion of awakening. And people have been starting to do this as well, especially the last 20, 25 years in relation to gender, sexual orientation, race, a lot in the last few years, particularly some of you know the work of uh, 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 Ruth King and Rhonda McGee. How many people know of their work who've been uh, uh, particularly giving practices that help us look at racial conditioning? You know, Ruth has her book, uh, Mindful of Race. She's based in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, Rhonda has a book called uh, The Inner Work of Racial Justice. She's based in San Francisco, right? And other people have been working on, on various uh, other practices. So there's slowly emerging practices that one can do to get at uh, different forms of social conditioning. You know, and the the vision is this might be something standard when we take up practice, not just something optional, but something that might be expected if we want to really get at the entirety of our conditioning. A third point, um, how much do we understand traditional awakening and a more contemporary awakening as parallel paths or something that we want to integrate. I'm going to come down on the uh, the integrative side, that we want to somehow connect what's most central and important in the traditional path and integrate it with those kind of practices that I named. And again, that's what I was thinking of when I was imagining a training program where we would train in both and then find ways to integrate. Again, people are doing that in various ways. You know, to integrate the traditional teachings with sort of emerging ways of getting at psychological and social conditioning. The fourth point related to that really, it's important that traditional understandings remain central part. We want to keep this vision of awakening. And I don't know if we... I don't know if awakening still looks the same, if it still looks like this quality of boundless, luminous awareness. But it's more that we've worked through more stuff. That may be the case. I I leave that as an open question. But we want to keep that notion of, uh, uh, keep the traditional notion of awakening and, and integrate it again with these other with these other forms. Uh, Both seem necessary. I think I just have one more point. I I looked at my point number five and on the spot I said, I think that's repetitive, saying the same thing, so just have five points, not six, sorry. Okay, point number six is, this is an interesting one, it's likely that a vision of awakening in community will be part of our sense of contemporary awakening. That's interesting, that community, which plays a very central role traditionally, but will play an important role. Some of you know a very uh, interesting, and in some ways provocative comment by Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese teacher, who who said this. He said, basically, The next Buddha won't be an individual, it'll be a community. Whoa, this is what he said. It is possible that the next Buddha will not take the form of an individual. The next Buddha may take the form of a community. A community practicing understanding and loving kindness, practicing mindful living. And the practice can be carried out as a group, as a city, as a nation. What does that mean? The next Buddha may be a community. You know, personally, I think there'll still be a very important role for individuals to awakening and there'll be a role for individuals who are more awake than others. But it also points to the role of community and there may be community practices to awaken. You know, that can be very crucial that we may need to practice not just individually, but as... um, you know, more relationally as communities. And this is also points to sort of innovations in practice. I know I've explored this a lot in the context of teaching uh, wise speech practice, particularly with my colleague Oren Sofer. And we've developed a lot of relational awareness practices, which we, you know, which we can do right now, where we try to keep inner awareness and outer awareness at the same time you know because a lot of our practice is spent with others and so we're going to need these more relational practices as well not just solitary meditation which is very beautiful and i've spent a lot of my life there but what might relational more community based practices look like we can see very concrete examples when we look to wise speech you know and i've sometimes taught here can you Listen internally, have some inner mindfulness, and also listen to me. That can be a model for how we are with each other, where we're not just all 100% outward or 100% inward, but we can live with some inner awareness and some outer awareness at the same time. That's very interesting, but it's very underdeveloped. So this is partly what I'm pointing to in terms of need for further practices and kind of almost like a new map for our times of awakening. So, and again, acknowledging that this takes time. There are other people who've pioneered this. Um, You know, I think of Joanna Macy and her work developing uh, community practices. And I also also thought of uh, Dr. King who had the notion that the aim is the beloved community. That's meant a lot to me. The aim is the beloved community said the end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends that will bring about miracles in the hearts of human beings. So let me finish and I'm, I'm really interested to see what your thoughts are because this is a little bit different from a lot of talks I've given. This is a little more of a, I don't know, a visionary talk or talking about pointing towards ways of practicing, ways of awakening. Let me finish. This is from um, the Zen teacher, Angel Kyoto Williams. She says, to do our work, to come into deep knowing of who we are, that's also the stuff that brings down systems of oppression. This is the work of reclaiming the human spirit, which includes reclaiming the sense of humanity of the people that are the current vehicles for those very forms of oppression. So it's saying there's inner work, and the inner work is connected with the outer work, which in part gets at dismantling systems of oppression and recognizing the humanity of those who are caught up in those systems. That's, I think that's a statement very much connected with the vision I've given. Well, thank you for listening and for indulging me in a way. Let's, let's just sit quietly and see what's there for you. Are there any reflections, questions, thoughts, uh, your own stories? And again, the vision, the vision is really one of integrating, the, you know, the deep inner practices, very traditional practices, with further training that gets at the more psychological and social conditioning, it does so in a way integrated deeply with this awakening into this vast awareness. That's the vision. Um, Yeah, David, please.
1: Yeah, um, I have a question, I guess. Um, uh, Related to what you said about, there seem to be individuals, teachers, who have, access to who are awakened and yet they that coexists with these racist or sexually exploitive attitudes and practices
0: yeah
1: and i how can that be i guess is my question um if if and if that is the case that seems to me that they're not really um in in a state of luminous non-dualistic awareness they're not really seeing into the true nature of things which includes seeing into the true nature of your own mind and self or is it just that they go in and out of it or I mean
0: yeah I mean I I I don't know from knowing such people personally but my uh, my sense of it is is that um They can, yeah, my sense is that some of them probably go in and out of it. Yeah, some of them can be in this very exalted state, but it's not there. And then the other piece is that they didn't go through training, which named some of the forms of conditioning that let them do what they, they did.
1: But they should be able to see that their conditioning is conditioning if they're seeing into the true nature of their own true nature and everything else.
0: It doesn't seem to necessarily happen. Yeah, partly, really? you know, there was a there was an interesting discussion following the uh, publication of these books on what happened in Japan, you know, with Zen teachers. Uh, one of the books is called Zen at War by uh, Brian Victoria, and there were there were a series of several other books as well, and people discussed this and. Uh, you know, there was, I think, in Tricycle magazine, there was like a panel discussion of Western Zen teachers. How do, you, how do they make sense of this? And uh, when I read that panel discussion, some of them made sense of it by saying they had some levels of awakening, but it wasn't full. And in particular, that they, they didn't get at their cultural conditioning. You know, that that was maybe more in relationship to the nationalism and so forth. But yeah, it's pretty shocking because one would sense that there would be a deep commitment to uh, compassion, care, and uh, seeing all beings as the expression of whatever you call it, Buddha nature, the divine, and so forth, right? That would be the expectation, but if you know so my my sense would be that they could be at times in these very exalted states that is possible to be in the exalted states you know in the morning and in the afternoon be messed up <laughs> to say it but it but it doesn't fit the kind of exalted status that has been given to some teachers right and again i'm suggesting that it's because we Partly because we don't have a map of practices that get at certain characteristic issues
1: thanks I should have prefaced all that by saying I've never been in any of those in any of those states myself so
0: <laughs> limit me here yeah thanks. thanks thank you thanks though for the question very helpful uh, Victoria please
2: well I actually um, had something similar I wanted to um Bring up because when you were when you started talking about those violations and how shocking they are, um, which indeed they are I was I was thinking of you know the current situation for example with the Catholic Church and um, you know we've had all through history there's been um, tremendous corruption in so-called spiritual high spiritual places and I feel like it comes back to you know if we're looking at greed hatred and delusion, um, I think delusion is the is the kind of deadly, element um often that uh because if you're in a state of delusion you're not aware that you're in a state of delusion I mean greed and hatred I think like I can identify that in myself if I feel if I get angry at somebody or or if I you know want something Um, but delusion I might be totally deluded not be aware of it at all and I think human nature has this tendency to want to put leaders up on a pedestal And then when the leaders are put on the pedestal, um, the, the great temptation is a kind of megalomania. And I think that's when it then can get corrupted into these, you know, the, the leader becomes, um, infallible, you know, like the, like the idea of the infallibility of the Pope that, that then people are all looking to this leader as if this leader were no longer fallible to human failings, you know, failings like, like, Actually, the whole human race is, in effect. So, I was just wondering about your, um, you know, the your ideas on in terms of like how to address this this temptation that often is not the fault of the of the leader. Um, There's so many leaders that have become um, almost godlike, and it was it was nothing was more contrary to their intention. They just wanted to teach humbly, but they they were elevated by their followers.
0: Yeah, I mean there there is there's a lot there and um I think I'll stay focused on what's happened in in Buddhist tradition not not cuz I was particularly focused on that because I was referring to people who as far you know it would be a good guess had experienced something like awakened states you know I uh so so I, how can that go on with um being caught up and I I think yeah, I think that you know, traditionally the greed, hatred, delusion, they go together. You know, you can be aware of your own greed, but at times you may not be aware of it when we're caught up, you know. So I think you know, I you know, one way to say it is a lot of the uh the violations surely are about when they were caught up in greed, hatred and delusion and not aware. You know, um uh so and yeah and there there also are there's a role that's played by um sort of an exalted way of seeing certain kinds of teachers for or um spiritual figures you know where one sees um you know i i i was remembering in terms like off often uh in different traditions i think less in in um, western traditions of insight meditation but in other some traditions that le- the teacher is taken to be very exalted i remember there's a passage from the beginning of uh, zen mind beginner's mind talking about uh, suzuki roshi and someone says a roshi is someone who has achieved perfect freedom of mind right and so there you know and they can and You know, even without that, there's been, um, there can be an enormous amount of projection. You know, and I think we all can know projection onto teachers. You know, projection meaning we uh, just think that they're wonderful. We project our good qualities onto them. And we may not see, or we, you know, in a lot of communities, we explain away what seem to be negative things happening. A lot of wishful thinking, projection. A lot of very strange uh, social dynamics. I know Jack Cornfield was very clear being aware of some of this. I think he wrote an article a long time ago, in 1985, about some of these dyna- negative dynamics happening. And part of his version for Insight Meditation Community was to do team teaching. Because so a lot of it is when you have these isolated, almost like guru-type figures and that, you know, there have been issues within the insight meditation community, but to the best of my knowledge, um, quite a bit less than with some of the other Buddhist traditions, partly for the reason that there's a notion of team teaching and teachers checking each other, you know, being giving feedback and so forth. And just, I, see, um, just, seeing, just seeing what's happening also.
2: Yeah, well, that's why I really love the um, having the the last point be community, because I think yeah. that's the beautiful way to have um, checks and balances in place from the outset that the community can um, sort of determine, you know, the, the validity of this sort of guru uh, status.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, I think so. So that, that would, you know, and, and you know, my particular interest here was more, I'm interested more in the training aspect. What kinds of training should we get to, basically get at all our stuff, right? And have it be within a uh context of looking for awakening. That's that's been my interest. I yeah. But thank thanks Victoria. Okay. Um Anna please. Hi. Hi
3: little scattered I think what I wanna ask or say um within this great hatred and delusion is there a sense of empowerment or power? included in those three words because I think that's the power mechanisms are probably part of the problem or empowerment
0: yeah yeah I mean I think there could be um, uh, greed could definitely be greed for power if that's what you're getting at so we could have greed for all sorts of things but uh, greed for power and control could be one of them
3: yeah because I think this whole power thing kind of deserves its own word or standing in those yeah things.
0: yeah I think I think that's helpful yeah, yeah it's really really pointing towards uh, questioning some forms of power and looking for more again more community basis where there could be more participation and uh, not such a division between the powerful and then everyone else yeah, yeah. and maybe that's
3: what I'm not sure I'm pronouncing the name right. Tip not Han is asking for in a way that that singular thing is just outdated, basically.
0: Yeah, that's, and maybe that's the notion, point.
3: but maybe it's a wish. Maybe it's his wish, seeing what's going on in the world. That yeah, that it gets kind of reformed. Right? I don't know the right word. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think that's that's important, and I know that um, you know I and many of my colleagues have been very interested in forms of actually retreats, which are much more participatory and less centered on, you know, the the wonderful teacher just spouting forth wisdom. You know, and it's also,
3: it's, I think it's so dangerous to be by yourself. I think it's especially yeah. when things like a pandemic hit you, um, It's it brings it out even more how, kind of lost we are when we're trying anything just on our own um yeah that was me i'm not by myself i have lots of siblings so i'm well off
0: yeah
3: and i'm really grateful for that that i have a big family
4: it's really yeah. important
0: yeah yeah okay. having having that community thank you thank you Anna. Yeah. um chase please hi thank you donald and
4: thank you tellin for your service um just some observations in what has been presented. Uh, it's interesting because it's my being willing to see how greed, hatred, and delusion plays a role in my life. You know, what are some of those characteristics that I exhibit? Um, I vivid be willing to want to look at that? Yeah. So it's like, what what are some ways in which the concept that you presented, do you, do you feel will be, be, be engaging enough for folks to be willing to see that within themselves?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, as I sometimes have joked over the weeks, uh, our advertising material doesn't talk about, come, have fun looking at greed, hatred, and delusion, right? It's more looking at the exalted qualities, learn how to be mindful, more present, develop love in your heart. Uh, But, uh, yeah, the Buddha focused a lot on looking at greed, hatred, and delusion. we We could rephrase those to mean, you know, grasping or a uh, sort of habitual aversion, or ways we get into certain habitual patterns. I think really the focus is on habitual patterns, where we're grasping it could be anything. It could be relationships, or food, or you know, people, or ideas, or views, or whatever. It could be all of these things, and the aversion could be in the same territory. I have aversion towards these ideas, or people, or whatever. And so, yeah, and, and so I think sometimes we need, my experience was I had to stabilize first in the beautiful qualities before I started seeing a lot of the greed, hatred, and delusion. That was my, my own personal sequence sometimes, and that gave me sort of a faith that, um, you know, part of my deep nature were the beautiful qualities. Because if someone had said just, okay, day one, look at greed, hatred, and delusion, I don't, I don't know if I would have been interested someone, I might have had to have had someone teach about awakening first. Yeah. Uh, did that get out some of it, Chase? Yes, it did. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Rich, please. Have time for just Rich, possibly Sonia. Yeah, if we have, yeah.
4: Yeah, uh, I just wanted to thank you for this, give you my reaction, you wanted reactions, and yeah. I think it's really refreshing to see this. Um, i for many years kinda of had this perspective that there's a psychological work that seems to be often excluded from spiritual path and awakening and all that. That's and so right. yeah I rarely have heard teachers talk about it once in a while, but very rarely. And when I think about it and I look into the world and I see how people interact, it's usually a lot of their unresolved material that is influencing that's right. they're acting and why are we not looking at that and and then you look at Buddhist practice and you think, okay, somehow that's supposed to get resolved, but the Buddha's been teaching for 2,500 years, you know, when all these people have had all this, and look at what's happening in the world, you know, how is it that we've had all this training and all this Buddhism and all this, Mindful spiritual work and all this stuff is going on. You know, it's like it doesn't seem like we're really getting at it so I'm very um, inspired and find it of refreshing and, and Really important that you're bringing in this other piece.
0: Really. Yeah. It's yeah. Thank, thanks rich And a lot, lot of people have had interest in that but uh, and some of it's a matter of uh, sequence like what do you study first and so forth. But uh, yeah, I've met, I remember one story. I met a monk who had been a monk for 30 years, and I asked what the edge of his practice was. And he said, I don't want to be so concerned about people liking me, which for me was telling me that there was this, you know, psychological material he hadn't touched in 30 years of practice. It's, it's quite was quite a stunning moment to have that conversation. Yeah. Thank you, Rich. I think let's finish with Sonia. And I'll, I'll try to be pretty brief in my response. Yeah.
1: Um, I just wanted to say that I really appreciated what you say in regards to uh, how important one's conditioning um, is in regards to awakening. Because I myself have found myself having certain qualities in me that are so awake, so walking, you know, yeah. compassion for us, from all this. And yet I have a daughter who came out as being queer
0: yeah,
1: and having to look at my own conditioning in regards to that. It's my task and it's huge for me and I didn't even know it was. Mm-hmm. So I can see how a teacher or somebody can feel like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm this being was awake and something is presenting like, Oh, wait. And I don't want to look at that. That's not, you
0: know, yeah
1: so that that for me was an important part of what you said
0: yeah yeah thank you sonia thank you for for sharing your own uh your own personal inquiry really 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 important and you know and uh yeah I mean, what would it be like if we had a training where looking at whatever we call it, homophobia was just a part a normal part of training you didn't yeah. have to wait till this happens, right? but it, right. was, it was there from the beginning along with looking into other, other social conditioning. know, yeah. That's, that's the kind of vision that I'm bringing forth and I'll, thank you. And I'll keep you in touch about this training program and thanks for your encouragement. Thank you. Yeah. Um, great. So thank you. Thank you so much, everyone who spoke and thanks for, um, Thanks for really being uh, willing to hear this this exploration, which is um, yeah, it's really an expression of a, you know a vision, which I think is important right now to uh, have a practice which both keeps the sense of awakening and the beauty of these amazing possible states, but also gives a map that lets it get at get at various forms of conditioning that if we don't explicitly go there, they don't get worked out. That's, that's the idea. And so, um, and how do we bring those all together? So let me invite you just to reflect on whatever was helpful from today, something that I said, or it could be something that just occurred to you an insight, not even necessarily related to the content. What was helpful from this morning together? Do you have any intentions coming out of the morning, out of our time? And then we offer the benefits of the morning to ourselves, to those in our own circles. We also offer the benefits to those beyond our own circles. Ultimately, we offer the benefits of our time together to all beings, knowing that we are part of all beings, very connected. So thanks everyone. And if you want to uh, unmute and say goodbye and hi, well I'll do this. Till next time. Great to see everyone.
4: Thank you so
3: much.
0: Bye thank
4: you. bye.
0: Bye. Yeah, thanks for your support of my stopped. explorations. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank
3: you. Uh, thank you.
0: bye. Bye-bye. Bye everybody. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Okay, till next time.
3: Next time, thank you so much, Donald. It's
4: wonderful talk.
0: Thank you so much, Tolan. Bye bye.